Hi, everyone. Good to be with you this evening. Um, it's lovely to have Kurt and some AM band members. What an amazing time of worship. Wow. I don't know if you guys are on the venue up there, but that was amazing. I got to preach in AM, and AM is no longer feeling like that estranged, distant cousin that I kind of visit every once in a while. They're starting to feel a lot more like family and starting to experience the goodness of being one congregation, and it's just lovely to have some people from AM with us and um, just starting to taste and experience the goodness of our togetherness. Um, so we are in the book of Mark, if you are unaware, maybe you're visiting and joining us for the first time tonight, and um, last week we had Ryan speak to us about the seriousness of sin, and, and what's so interesting is that Jesus, as he's made it clear that what his mission is, there's a point in the book of Mark where Jesus goes, my mission, my purpose is actually to come to earth was to die. And that I would be raised in power and that I would achieve so much in that moment. And I'd make a way for humanity to be restored to God and restored to me through that act. And ever since he's become explicit about the reality that he's going to die, his teachings have become more clear and in some ways more intense. And we saw last week uh, Jesus take his disciples aside and go, guys, sin is incredibly serious. Take it seriously. When you choose sin or you play with sin, you're playing with life and death. And there's a seriousness to Jesus as he starts to unpack the text. And, and just before that, before the break in the We Are Family series, he spoke to them about greatness. And he got serious and said, guys, you don't understand what greatness really is. Let me teach you what it is. And he's becoming clearer and more explicit in his teaching. And here what we see um, this evening is that Jesus moves out of that room and out of that space. And he goes to towards um, Jerusalem. He starts teaching. And now we've just read the text, and you might be tempted to think that this text that we're about to dive into has everything to do with marriage and divorce. And it does have some things to do with marriage and divorce, and we are going to talk about that. But actually, there's something so much deeper going on here as, the, as these Pharisees come to Jesus and try to trick him. And as they try to trick him, Jesus turns the table on them, almost puts a mirror onto them so that they can see the condition of their own hearts. And what we're going to see is that this text has so much to do with the condition of our hearts and Jesus exposing a, a condition of the heart that can be incredibly dangerous and damaging. And so if you're here going, well, I'm not really in the marriage camp, and if you are in the marriage camp, I'm not really in the camp that might be near divorce, we're, we're going to speak to that. But actually, this is not about this. This is a text about the condition of our hearts and where our hearts are at. And Jesus is doing a bit of heart surgery in this moment. And so as they try to trick him, Jesus, this encounter with Jesus actually ends up exposing their hearts and our hearts. And this condition that Jesus is going to deal with in this text can change and fundamentally destroy the relationship that we have with God and the relationship that we have with each other. So it's incredibly important that we hear what Jesus has to say to us this evening. So whether married or not, this, this text is for you. And I really do hope that God speaks to us as he turns the mirror of his gaze onto our hearts, that we would see what it is that we need to see about ourselves this evening. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. Father, I ask that as we unpack your words tonight, Jesus, that you would speak clearly, that you would speak loudly. God, would our hearts be receptive and humble to hear your words God, would you meet us in such a, a deep and profound way that we leave this moment 
experiencing more of your fullness, more of your joy, more of a deep and meaningful relationship with the creator of the universe? Would we be different leaving tonight than how we arrived because of the work you've done in us? God, we need you. We love you. We want to learn what it is to rest in you. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at this text under kind of three big headings. The first one is, how hard is your heart? The second one is, um, are you seeking fullness in God? And the third one is, um, accept Jesus' offer of rest. But before we get there, we're going to look at a bit of context. And uh, the verse 1 says this, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, uh, and again as was his custom, he taught them. So this, this moment, as I've said, where Jesus now leaves the room, he's no longer with his disciples, and he continues his journey towards Jerusalem, his journey towards the cross, and there's a significant moment where he passes the Jordan. The people of God in the Old Testament, as they passed the Jordan, was the moment that signified that they'd arrived in the Promised Land after years of wandering in the desert, a big moment. And here we have Jesus crossing the Jordan, heading towards Jerusalem on his way to die. There's significance in this moment. And what's amazing about the person of Jesus, wherever he went, crowds would be gathered. There was something so significant, so real, so substantial about the person of Jesus, the things he did and the things that he taught, that people would be drawn to him, that crowds would gather around him. He was the event that everybody wanted to be at. He was the person that when people heard, Jesus is by that well over there, they all went there because Jesus was someone they wanted to know and understand and encounter because of everything that they'd heard about him. And so Jesus draws a crowd again as he moves towards Jerusalem, and he does what he always does with the crowds, is he teaches them, he taught them. This is why we do as... Christ follows me on a Sunday and sit under the teaching of Jesus, sit under the words of Jesus and hear the words. It's why we get a guy like Dev to come and read the words so that we can hear the words of Jesus and be taught by Jesus because Jesus made it one of the main focuses of his ministry, if not the main focus, was to teach. And so the mark of a Christ follower is someone who learns from Jesus. And you have these crowds who've gathered to learn from Jesus. And, and Jesus would teach amazing things about the kingdom to come and he would help people make sense of the Old Testament in ways that the religious leaders leaders of the time weren't doing, and he would speak about how he is the fulfillment of so much of what the Old Testament promised, and that he was the one that was promised. He was the Messiah, and he would speak about what that means, and and now he's starting to get more explicit about his need to go and die on a cross and be raised in power. And so that would have been some of the content of his teaching, and he would have been unpacking the fullness of the kingdom and what it means to live in the kingdom and what we might experience as we encounter the kingdom and step into it. And so Jesus has been teaching about these things through the book of Mark. We've been unpacking it, and and he's continuing that teaching now as these crowds gather to him. And then, and one of the things that marks Jesus' teaching is that he has a deep compassion and desire and love for the people that he's teaching. You see it through the book of Mark, that his desire is for people to understand who he is. His desire is for people to understand what their souls and their hearts are longing for. His, his desire is for people to, to gain a knowledge of what they need to live full and complete lives in the kingdom of God and in relationship to God. That's his desire as a compassionate, loving teacher I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to take you somewhere that will bring life to you. 
And then in this moment, what we have is we have these religious leaders, these Pharisees come to Jesus and the religious leaders of the time, these Pharisees should have been, should have had the same heart for the people of God. They should have had a deep devotion to God, a love for God, and a deep love and care for people. That's how you sum up the law, is love God and love people. And they should have been those who love God and love people and showed others how to love God and love people. But instead, what happens is they come into this moment where Jesus is teaching and they cut across his teaching. And they try to trick him. And they bring a question that they know is a theologically tricky question. And where Jesus is trying to teach and bring life, they're like, let's talk theology. You know that guy in your small group? You're speaking life. He's like, let's talk theology. And it's great. Theology is important. We need, theology, if you define theology as what you understand and know about God, is brilliant. When you define theology as what I, what I think makes me intelligent and clever and know more than you, then it's not so great. And in this moment, they use theology in a destructive way. And they bring a question to Jesus, verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him and ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they have this desire to trip Jesus up. They have this desire to undermine his teaching. You see, the Pharisees knew that the teachings of Jesus were causing them to lose influence and authority over the people of God. That there was something unique and special about the teaching of Jesus that was seasoned with, with grace and mercy and kindness and power that was starting to show up their teaching. And so they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his teachings. They bring in this question. They know that there would be people on this side of the spectrum who say, no, you can get divorced whenever you need to. Just be happy. And then there'd be people on this side of the spectrum who say, no, you can never get divorced. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter what happens. No matter what happens in your marriage, never. And then everybody in between. And they know that by coming to Jesus and asking him this question, they could potentially at least divide his crowd at least separate him from some of the, 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 the leaders and, and religious scribes of the time and theologians of the time, that surely Jesus would have to make a stance, and in making a stance, he would find himself splitting his crowd and losing influence over some. Surely he would find himself in a position where he's either um, um, maybe undermining the word of God or, or, or re reinterpreting it in a way that undermines his teaching and his authority with people. And that's their goal, is to test him, is to trick him, is to catch him out. So this is the moment that we, we step into where, where this happens. And, and Jesus is amazing because in this moment you can imagine you know, I've got, he's got a crowd in front of him and suddenly someone just comes up and asks him this tricky question and puts him on the spot. And immediately there's this group of religious leaders going, how do you answer this? And the crowd's leaning in and looking and going, yeah, Jesus, how do you answer this? And it's such a pastorally insensitive question that they've asked because I don't know who was in the crowd. They may have been married, struggling. There may have been people who've been gone through really difficult circumstances and ended up divorced against what they wanted to do, not the dream that they had for their marriage. And these guys just come in and ask this question in front of everyone, not caring about people, but caring about their own agenda, their own authority, and their own kind of influence over people. And Jesus is masterful in this moment. I love what he does. He asks them a question back. Verse 3, he answers them, what did Moses command you? 
Such an amazing question, because what he's doing in this moment is as they come and they try to put Jesus on the spot, he turns it away from himself and he says, you know what I know we can all agree on is that the word of God is the final authority. And he says, so what did Moses write in the Old Testament? And suddenly he takes the tension off himself and he pushes the weight and the pressure for the answer of this question onto the scriptures. He says, don't look to me, don't look to your Pharisees, don't look to the crowd, let's look to God's words as written in the Old Testament through Moses. And he shifts the attention off of himself and onto the word of God. And then they answer, and it's very telling in the way that they answer. It's very telling about them when they, when they the, in the text that they choose to go to and the way in which they choose to paraphrase that text. Verse 4, and they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It's such a callous paraphrasing. Moses allows a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And what this means and what's, what it's getting at is that in Deuteronomy 24, there's this law where Moses allows or institutes a process where in a divorce, under the right circumstances, in a divorce, the man is required to write a certificate of divorce to ratify the divorce with a piece of paper that is signed and sealed. And the reason that Moses does that is, one, to regulate divorce, to make sure that people aren't getting divorced for, for random, unnecessary reasons, like, hey, you burnt the toast today, I'm done with you, kind of divorce. That's what he's trying to prevent. But he's also, in the time that they were in, protecting women who, who could have been with husband number one and then, for whatever reason, got divorced and then um, found herself remarried to husband number two. And what would happen is if husband number two died with any sense of wealth or the dowry that, that would have been paid for her, husband number one, without a certificate of divorce, could have said, no, nah, we never actually got divorced. She just went off and got remarried. And, and I actually want to lay claim to our marriage. And actually, he's laying claim to the wealth that would have been there. And she would be able to go, no, look, I've got a certificate of divorce. You actually divorced me. And it would protect her from any claim that was illegitimate. So this is the heart of Moses as he sets up this process and this regulation as he's governing people on, on divorce um, as, it, as it was happening. And that's the heart of Moses. But so much is revealed about their hearts in this moment. And Jesus sees through their questions Jesus gets a bit more information as he sees which text they choose to go to and how they choose to paraphrase that text. And he calls them out on it straight away, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He's basically saying, how hard is your heart? How hard is your heart? Is the question of Jesus as he calls them out. He's saying, I see hardness there, but how hard is it? And I love how he, what he does here is he doesn't say their hearts were hard. Hard. <laughs> their hearts. <laughs> this happened to me this morning. I haven't been able to get it right all day. You try and say it ten times. Their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard. That's why Moses no, he says, your hearts are hard. And it's beautiful because what he's saying in that moment is that whatever Moses wrote in the, in the, New Te in the Old Testament Scriptures, whatever is in Scripture uh, was written for every generation that was to come. And it speaks to every heart that would exist. And he includes the current generation and our generation in this statement. How 
Hard is your heart. Your, the reason that this was in place is because your hearts are hard. And he includes the Pharisees that are standing before him. And he makes this a blanket statement. It's not just to do around marriage and divorce that their hearts are hard. It's just that their hearts are hard. It's a blanket statement. The reason these sorts of things exist is because you have hard hearts. And there are two kind of hardnesses of heart that we see in them in this moment. This first one is a hardness of heart that comes when we live and exist for our own purposes and agendas. When we exist and live for our own purposes and agendas. These Pharisees were so about what they, they, they were so about their own agenda. They were so about their own purposes. They were so about their own interpretations of the scripture that they couldn't even see Jesus for who he was. There's a hardness of heart that when God is literally standing before you, teaching you about the kingdoms of, kingdom of God, teaching you about and performing incredible miracles that no one else could do and fulfilling prophecies that no one else could fulfill, there's a hardness of heart that refuses to see who stands before you. And these Pharisees were so hard in their hearts. They were so about their authority and their ability to interpret the Scriptures that they were blind to the fact that God stood before them. There is a massive irony here that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, the ones who should have understood and known the Scriptures the best, are standing before God and they're using the words of God against the work of God. They're literally using the words of God to try and undermine the work of God. Jesus is on a mission towards a cross. He's on a mission to let people know about per, the, the purpose for which he stood into human history. He's trying to teach people what it means to experience the kingdom and step into the kingdom. And the very people who should be on his side going, look, the scriptures have been pointing to this all the time, are trying to use the very words of God to undermine his mission on earth. As a pastor, I have people come to me and they say, how do we make sense of people using the words of God and the Bible to do as justification for atrocity in the world? I think of the Crusades or Nazi Germany or apartheid where, where some would try and say that we can justify these things out of the word of God. And the immediate assumption is that there's something faulty and broken about the person of Jesus and his words. But what we see here is Jesus himself experiencing his own words being used against him and his purposes and plans in this world. And the reason that wor the words of Jesus can be used in such destructive ways is not because the words are broken, but because our hearts are hard. And they become a tool that we will use incorrectly to get our own way. And we see the Pharisees doing that. It's like a hammer. A hammer is designed and built to hammer in nails. And that can be used to build amazing things, pieces of furniture, shelter for us to sleep in. It can be used to build life-giving things. But when used incorrectly, it can be used to kill. It was never intended to be used to kill. So that's the first hard hardness we see, an absolute blindness to the reality of who's standing in front of them. And then the second uh, blindness that we see in them or hard-heartedness that we see in them is this legalistic loophole faith that exists in them. You see, when Jesus says to them, what, is, what does God say about marriage? What does Moses say about marriage? They go back to Deuteronomy 24. 
Jesus later goes, no, I'm going to go back to the words of Moses in Genesis. And in Genesis, God, what Moses does is he writes what marriage was designed to be by God, what God's purposes, plans, and intention behind marriage was, who the author of marriage is. And he goes back to design. This is what marriage should be. This is God's heart and intent for marriage. And immediately you see what they've done is they've gone to the loophole text in in Deuteronomy 24 instead of going to the design and heart of God text. So Jesus has has tricked them with the question, not tricked them, but exposed them with the question when he goes, hey, what, what is going on in your heart? What does Moses have to say about this? And he exposes in them the hard hearted loophole faith, legalistic loophole faith that exists. What do I mean by that? It's the kind of faith where you go, God, I'm going to do what I need to do to be on your good side because I I do kind of want to be on your good side because, you know, Ryan talked to us last week about the seriousness of sin. And so I don't want to be on your bad side. I want to be on your good side. But God, I I I don't want you to have any claim to my life or my devotion or my heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to obey the rules. Please, I'm just going to obey the rules, and if I obey the rules, then, then, then I'm right with you. And the Pharisees were brilliant. At, like, they would invent rules on rules, on top of rules, so that they could go, God, I am self-righteous before you. You have no claim on me. I see so many people still, even in my own heart, in my own life, where I invent rule upon rule upon rule, so that I don't have to give God my heart. I can just give God my self-righteous actions. And then the problem is, is when this list, when we come undone and we go, oh, I failed on that rule, we suddenly start scrambling, where's the loophole? Where's the loophole? And what I find is with legalistic people is eventually your, your life starts to look like a hula hoop party. You're basically diving through so many loopholes. It's like, yeah, I know, I know that God requires this, but if you read the text like this and you change the Greek to be Latin and then you invert it three times, I can do it this way and I'm not in trouble with God. And I know that that's not for everybody, but that's me. I'm, I'm safe. I've invented this loophole. And that's basically what these guys are doing. They're going to Deuteronomy 24 and going, oh, we can invent loopholes. And it shows their heart. We're not devoted to God's ways. We just don't want to be in trouble with God. I've got an analogy for this. It's close to home in our household. But basically, imagine, no, don't imagine. If you're in digs, I'm sure this happens. Maybe you don't have a dishwasher if you're in digs, or maybe you are the dishwasher if you're in digs. But um, maybe you're married or whatever. So imagine you have a kitchen with a dishwasher, and your spouse or your friend comes into the kitchen and says, you know what, I cooked dinner tonight. It was my turn to cook dinner. I cooked dinner. I've cleaned everything up. I've packed the dishwasher, but the dishwasher's done. Can you just please take everything out the dishwasher. And you're like, you want me to take everything out the dishwasher? And you're like, yes, please, will you just take everything out the dishwasher? And then what happens is you open up the dishwasher, you take the plates and you kind of shove them kind of where you think they go. And you're like, these spoons, I'm not sure where they go. So you kind of leave them on the counter and then the cups kind of end up and you're like, oh, I hate stacking cups. So you kind of just leave them on the counter over there. And then what happens is your spouse or your friend walks into the kitchen and they're like, this place is a mess. What's going on here? And you go, well, you asked me to unpack the dishwasher. Look, it's unpacked. Look, I've got the evidence. Look, I, I, the rule was unpack the dishwasher, and I unpacked the dishwasher. And your friend's spouse goes, come on. You know what I meant. If you loved me, you'd know what I meant. 
I needed you to take that out and put it where it belonged and leave this place as neat and tidy as I'd made it for you. And that's what legalistic loophole faith is. I unpacked the dishwasher, but I didn't care about the intent or reason that you asked me to unpack the dishwasher. We, must be, we mustn't be tempted to think, oh, this hard-hearted, legalistic, loophole faith, it doesn't apply to me because I think Jesus in his words, when he says to them, this rule exists because of your hard hearts, it's not just their generation, it's our generation that he's speaking to. All of us run the risk of living a legalistic faith where we think we're right with God because we don't do certain things and do do certain things. And it's an incredibly dangerous state for your heart to be in because what it does is it makes you think that you are okay with God when actually you are very, very far from God. And like these Pharisees in this case, actually opposed to God with their legalism. It makes you feel like you're okay with God, but you're actually very, very, very far from God. And that's why it's such a dangerous condition of our hearts. So how do you know? I've got some warning signs that I myself am slipping into legalism or you may be slipping into legalism. The first one is reputation management, where you care less about devotion to God and you're grieved less about your sin, but you're more concerned about who's going to find out and what's that going to mean for your reputation. You've drifted from the grace of God where it's okay to be known and loved into a legalism where, man, you live by your standard and your reputation. So reputation management is a good sign that your heart is growing hard. You you care less about God's desires and wants for people and you care more about your own personal influence and power. You care more about other people's sin than you do about the sin in your own life. Where somehow you think that, hey, I've, I've received the fullness of grace that I need from God, and therefore I don't need grace anymore. I've kind of reached that kind of sanctification level of perfection. But man, I can see the sin in everybody else in society. And you're that, that sin, that is ugly. I would never do that. That's a sign of legalism creeping into our hearts instead of a humility that says, God, I need your grace every day. I'm not who I should be, and I would fall horribly short if it were not for your grace in my life. Loophole obedience rather than an obedience driven by joy and devotion. And then finally, a simple disregard for Jesus and who he says he is. Actually, there's one more, and this one I see playing out in my life. This is almost always the warning sign. There's a deep tiredness in my soul. That kind of tiredness where you're like, man, it doesn't matter how much I sleep, I just seem to get more tired. For me, that's a warning sign that I've slipped out of the joy of grace and into the hard toil of legalism. It is hard work to try and build up a reputation and a a sense of achievement before a perfect and holy God that makes you feel like you're worthy to stand before him. It is exhausting work for a soul that can't do it. 
and so often the deep soul tiredness that we feel. When your heart becomes, the, when the hum of your heart becomes grumpy and irritable and angry, so often a warning sign that you've slipped into legalism and you've lost the joy of grace and the goodness of God. Jesus then moves on to kind of remove their loophole interpretation of the law of Moses. And he starts to reveal a far better way to approach things in our lives, especially as Christ follows. And the way that he reveals is, is simply this. I sum it up as a question. Are you seeking fullness in God? Are you seeking fullness in God? And I'll unpack what I mean by that. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And so Jesus, what he's done is he's going, okay, so you've gone to the loophole text. I'm now going to go to Moses' text on what God's intent and purpose for marriage is. And in doing that, he gives us a principle for everything in our lives. Whenever you encounter anything that God would give you to steward or to use, whether it's marriage or anything, the best question to ask is, who created this? And the answer is always God, unless it's something incredibly evil. God. And then the, the answer to how do I use it is, well, how would God call me to use this? What was God's intention? What was God's purpose in creating this thing? Why did he allow me to be a steward of this marriage? Why did he allow me to be the steward of this thing? And to ask those questions of everything. You see, the logic is simple. The logic is this. If God made it, and God had intent and design in making it, surely what he tells, how he tells us to use it, surely how he's designed it is the best course of action or way to use it. I've got an example. When I was a student, I went on a road trip and we ended up in the trans sky. I had a little red Chico. Some of you might not even know what a Chico is. They were very popular when I was around. They're tiny little VWs. They like made thousands of them. Like they blow away in the wind. They were that big. And it's this little tiny little red Chico. And I'm in a Chico. If you drive a Chico, it's amazing. And um, they're amazing. They're like little tanks, but they, but they also blow away in the wind. I, I don't make sense. They just kept going and they never broke. Well, okay, let me just tell my analogy. So, anyways, I'm in my little red Chico, four of us, fully laden, surfboards on the roof. We're traveling through. We end up in the trans sky and there's just signs everywhere four by four only, four by four only, four by four only. I'm like, whatever. I'm in a Chico. Okay, and I would drive this thing to the destination, and my greatest joy would be pulling up in like 10, 15 Land Rovers, fully kitted up, and I'm in a little red chicken, and I pull up like half the size of everything else. Yeah, you don't need a Land Rover. It's like, this is amazing. When I finished in the Transkai and got back onto the highway, I could never go over 100 again without the thing shaking apart. The wheels would be straight. The chassis would be at this angle everywhere I drove over the, after that moment. The car was never the same again. It survived the roads. It survived doing what it wasn't intended to do, but it would never be the same, and it was broken ever since that moment. And the analogy is simply this, is as we can drive things the way God intended them to be, and they'll probably flourish. Or we can try and use things that God has created in a way that he never intended them to be used. And we might think that they're flourishing until the, they break like my little red chico.
You see, the, the question that they were asking, the question that a loophole legalistic Christianity causes us to ask is, how can I use this thing my way before I get in trouble? But the question Jesus would cause us to ask is, how do I use this God's way and trust that they'll be flourishing? And this applies to everything, money, power, sex, privilege, strength, nature, gifting, marriage, education, friendships, opportunity, health, the words of God, it applies to everything. How did God design this, and what is his intent for it? And so often it is at this, this point where we have a choice, where, where we have a desire to use something a certain way, and we realize at that moment, at the heart level, we go, whoa, 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 the way I want to use this thing is probably my way and not God's way, versus I can choose to use this God's way. And at that point, that fork in the road moment, and as Christ followers, we'll have those fork in the road moments often where we're given something to steward, and we're going, this is how I want to use it. Oh, but it doesn't align. And then there's that choice moment of, do I do it God's way, or do I do it my way? And at that point, we often see the mirror of the condition of our heart put on full display so that we can see what's going on in there. And it's at that point that we see whether there's a loophole legalistic faith that exists in us, a hard-heartedness, or a deep affection, trust, and love for Jesus and his ways. And at that point, at that crossroad, there's those fork-in-the-road moments. What I see, especially in a time like this, has just escalated. COVID has just escalated this. That it's not the logic that we struggle with. It's not the logic of God made this. Surely he knows how best we should use it. That's not what we struggle with. What we struggle with is trusting that God is good. And we can have this view of God that says he is stingy, he is narrow, he is withholding, and he's a killjoy, which is why he wants me to go that way. And if I just go this way, there's going to be joy and fullness and pleasure. Because that's the view that so many of us, including myself, can have of God. It's actually a faith and trust issue. And what's incredible is it's actually Jesus who stepped down into human history. He left his Father and the glories of heaven, emptied himself of those glories, stepped down into human history, and is literally teaching a crowd about the cross that he's about to go to. And it is the religious, legalistic, loophole Pharisees that are coming and being the killjoys. And Jesus would give himself fully and completely to humanity in every way, that he would not withhold anything, that he would give himself fully and completely, that in a few days' time he would be hanging on a cross, shedding his blood, paying a price that only he was worthy to pay but did not deserve for a people who did not deserve him to do it. And he would not do it because we are so amazing and so worthy. He would do it out of his own sense of love, mercy, kindness, and generosity towards humanity. He would step into that place. He would willingly put himself in that place. And he would empty himself in that moment. He would experience separation from the Father so that he could invite people back into relationship with him. There was no greater act of kindness. There was no greater act of someone emptying themselves for the fullness of someone else. That's what Jesus would do. But yet we can have this view in these moments that he's withholding, that he's narrow. 
that is a killjoy. There's a verse, it's a big verse, I don't have time to unpack it. I just want to read it. Because I'm hoping that just in reading this text, it would capture your hearts in such a way that you would understand God's desire for us to experience His fullness. It's a verse where Paul, who understands the gospel, understands what Jesus has actually done, is praying for a church. And what he's praying for this church is that they would experience everything that God has for them, that they would understand that God is not withholding, but that God has freely given and continues to freely give of himself. So I'm going to read this verse. Please listen and and just catch a sense of the fullness of what God offers us. It's Ephesians 3 verse 14. Paul praying this prayer of this church. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do abundantly more. What an amazing piece of scripture. Here we see Paul's understanding of God emboldens him to pray this prayer. God, would you fill them with your spirit? God, would you, would you give them the strength that they need to comprehend the fullness of your love? God, out of the riches of your glory, would you bless them? God, do not withhold your goodness. Just lavish it on us as a church. That's the God we serve. And when we have that understanding of God, when we have that picture of God, when we find ourselves at those crossroad moments of choosing to steward something or use something our own way and trust that there's going to be fullness of joy or God's way and trust that there's going to be fullness and joy, verses like this and an understanding of God like this, a gospel understanding of who Jesus is and his grace should cause us to easily pivot down the road that leads towards God and his ways. It should be the easiest thing. We should be skipping in that direction. There should be no resentment or sense of loss as we move that way. And I've been a pastor. I've I've seen fork in the road moments for me, and I've seen fork in the road moments for countless people. I've sat across the table begging people, don't take the way you think will bring life. That's going to bring destruction. Walk the way that God intends us, the way in which God intends this thing to be used. Walk that way. It will bring fullness. It will bring joy. And it will bring life. I've seen people take both paths time and time again. And I can guarantee that when you do things the way God intends you to you use things the way God intends you to use them, the way He created them, it brings fullness, it brings joy, and it brings life. Here's the disclaimer. It doesn't always bring ease or comfort or convenience. <laughs> doesn't promise those things, but it does bring life and fullness and joy. Now, that's the principle we see as Jesus turns to that text, is that the question we should all be asking as Christ followers is, what is God's intention? I do want to just spend five minutes speaking to marriage. 
Because there is this moment where Jesus, in teaching them and showing them how they aren't asking the wrong question about marriage, what he basically says is, okay, I don't want to go to the loophole text when you ask me questions about marriage. I want to go to God's intention for marriage. And there are just three things. I could say a whole bunch. I could preach an entire sermon just on these few verses. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to say three very quick things to married couples and to the rest of us who aren't married. In our origin series, we did a far fuller treatment on marriage. So you can go there and get that if you want a full, further treatment on marriage. But I just want to say three things from this. So Jesus goes back to that text, and he speaks of the reality that God has done something. God has bound something together. That a man would leave his family and hold fast to his wife. That holding fast to each other, a husband and wife holding fast to each other, is covenantal love. It's a covenantal commitment. It's a choosing to hold fast. That on the front end of marriage, there would be a choosing love. When it says that in the beginning that God created man and woman and then he brought them together in a marriage, he's saying something profound about society and he's saying something profound about marriage. The first thing we see in in this text is that marriage is a building block of society. Marriage is a building block of society. There are two big mistakes we make when it comes to marriage. Is we go, marriage is everything, and we idolize it as if it's going to be the solve in our life. It will not. Only Jesus will. I promise you, marriage is tough. It won't solve the problems. It will just create more. Ask my wife. Okay, so marriage is everything. The other side of that is marriage is nothing. It's just an institution of society. It's just designed by man. It's just an archaic thing that should not exist anymore. And when we come to this text, we go, no, marriage was created by God, and in the very first marriage would be the launching point of God's people, would be the building block in society, and that marriage is meant to be a stabilizing institution where children are born and nurtured, but not just that, where society finds a stabilizing force of people who've made lifelong commitments to each other. And societies have been shown through the ages to flourish when marriages and families flourish. But what this does mean for us who are married is that our marriages are not our own. Your marriage is not your own. Your marriage is not your little castle and your little kingdom. Your marriage is a part of society. Your marriage is a part of community. And it is a building block in community. It is meant to be outward focused, not inward focused. Number two. The second thing I want to just say to marriage quickly and to, in, to marriage in general, that the, the significant covenantal work of God bringing two to one is a work of God that should not be broken. It's a work of God that should not be broken. Again, this is a, a marriage is a, is a commitment that we make before government, yes. There are legal realities to it. There's a commitment that we make before people. Yes, there's community reality to it and accountability. But ultimately, there's a commitment that we make before God and to each other, husband and spouse. But there's a three-way covenantal commitment that we go, I, in God's help and based on His covenantal love and an understanding of His covenantal love, I choose to love you no matter what the future holds, no matter what we experience, no matter how I feel, I choose to love you. And because of God's covenantal love, I know what it is to forgive. I know what it is to move towards your grace. And I know what it is to move towards your mercy. And that that is what I choose to do in this moment, to move towards you in grace, mercy, and love. I will be quick to forgive covenantal love. And this is something that God has done something spiritual 
He's taken two individual people and spiritually made them one. It's a union made by God. It is a work of God, which is why Jesus says, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And you see what he's done in that moment by quoting that text. He says, yeah, you've got Moses' processes trying to separate uh, marriage. But don't lean on that because what God has brought together, let nothing separate. Let nothing separate it. And so husbands and wives hold fast to each other in covenantal love. Verse 11, I love what Jesus does is he moves away from the crowd. And this is our last verse for the evening. He moves away from the crowd and he comes into a room with his disciples and his disciples go, whoa, Jesus, that teaching was radical. You're basically saying that there is no, never a reason to get divorced. And Jesus basically says these words, but he does it in private. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And he reinforces it in the private space. He reinforces it with even stronger language. But there's pastoral care here that he doesn't do this in the crowd. He does this in the private space with a bunch of leaders who are going to have, a, have to have a high commitment to what marriage means and what marriage is. He says, guys, this is serious. But Jesus does, in other teachings, in the Gospels, give exceptions. Where divorce is legitimate. Where there is grounds for divorce. And what I've learned is I've walked many divorce journeys, way more than I thought I'd ever walk in the time that I've been a pastor, I've learned that each case is, is the, the, the story of that couple is unique and it has to be worked out pastorally. You have to understand what's going on there. And there's no blanket rule that you can just place on people. The circumstances are too vast and too complicated. But we are guided by Scripture. And because it is complicated and because it is nuanced and because it is significant, what we've done is we've pushed this, the questions that we might have or put the questions that we might have about marriage and divorce into a comprehensive doc and we've put it on our website so it can be accessed and read and followed and you'll see a link there if you go there if you want to go deeper into the disclaimers that Jesus does make. But I think what is appropriate for us tonight is that if your marriage is struggling, if your marriage is struggling, the starting point is the covenantal love of God and the covenantal promises that you've made towards each other. That's where you start dealing with the problems. If you start dealing with each other in the grace of God, by the mercy of God, with the truth of God, and you make your marriage that safe space where you can be real and honest and know that the other person is going to continue to choose to love you, you can endure many things. There have been times in the first few years of Laura and I's our marriage, which was pretty um, volatile, I should say. Volatile. We're both leaders. And we like to lead, and we like to get explosive and shout. We call it passion, passionate. Okay? Rocky. And there were moments where at times I would go, Lord, there is no back door to this marriage. So we have to work this out. And then there'd be times where, where Laura would go, Ian. I'm holding you to the promises and the covenant that you made before God. There is no back door to this marriage. We have to work this out. 
And God in His grace has helped us work things out. But just the safety of knowing that I'm committed to you no matter how ugly you get, and you're committed to me no matter how ugly I get, and we're going to work this out in the grace of God and trust that we is going to cause this marriage to flourish. That's the starting point for any marriage in trouble. And very practically, I would say, if your marriage is struggling and you're struggling, open up your marriage to people. Too often, I have couples come to us and they go, yo, it's taken us a year to get here. We're really struggling. It's really hard. Do you know that my husband does this? And I was like, yeah, so does mine. And they're like, what? It's normal. Yeah, it's normal. They leave their underpants on the floor. It's normal. It's irritating. And they don't clean up often. It's really irritating. And you're like, oh, so this isn't a big deal. No. Well, sometimes they come to me and you go, well, that's a big deal, but you're not the first couple that's gone through this. And Look at all these examples of, by the grace of God, these couples got through it. One of the worst things for a marriage is to become insular and an echo chamber within yourselves. Open up your marriage to other couples and start with the covenantal love that God has for you and the covenantal promises that you made to each other. That's the starting point. And if you go there, Day in and day out, it will iron out 99% of the problems in your marriage. And every once in a while, there is a 1% reality where a marriage cannot be saved. And that's often through one spouse having incredible, an incredibly hard heart. Or both. Okay. That's what I wanted to say to marriage. But to the rest of us, what I want to say is how do we deal with our hearts? And the band can join me up here. I hope the band's still around. There they are. Okay. The band can join me up here. What do you do with your hard hearts? The majority of this message has been about that dangerous condition of the heart that can be hard towards God. Where we're so about our own agenda, we don't see who He is. Or... Or, yeah, we're just blind to the reality of who God is and what He's doing. Or we're living a loophole Christianity faith where it's not about devotion and love and affection for God. But rather, I don't want to get into trouble. I want to live my life my way. If you've seen a bit of that in your own heart, what do you do about it? What would Jesus say? I'll give you the legalist's answer. The legalist would say, try harder. Try harder. Clean up your acts. Get it sorted. Come on. You know you're not meant to do that thing. Just get it right. And once you've got it right, you'll be worthy of God. Just stop it. Just stop doing that thing. I've got a friend who's got the most self-control ever. And when he decides to just stop something, he just stops it. And, and that's what the is like. Why don't I have that self-control? I just, just stop it. I'm like, don't be hard, heart. It doesn't work. What Jesus would say is, let my grace, mercy, undeserved grace, mercy, and kindness melt your heart. Melt your heart. Jesus doesn't smash hard hearts. Jesus doesn't bring the hammer to hard hearts. Jesus brings his grace, mercy, kindness, and love to hard hearts in such a way that they melt and they soften. I experienced that as a 16-year-old legalist on a camp where I experienced grace for the very first time, looking up at the stars after a message, and I felt the warmth, the kindness, and the affection of God flood through my heart and fear just dissipate out of my life. I can't, meet the, I can't meet the standard. He's met the standard. He invites me into relationship with Him. 
And so what Jesus does with hard-hearted people is he invites them into a wonderful encounter with him. So I'm going to read a verse, which is the summary of Jesus' invitation. And then we're going to stand together and we're going to sing. And if you feel like you need to do business with God, take your opportunity in that song to do business with God. And I would invite you to accept his invitation. Jesus seeing a whole bunch of his people, the crowds, burdened and laden with legalism, says this to them in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's stand and sing together.